Hola, 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 amigo, amigas, players, playwrights, doo-doo-dats, everybody in between. Welcome. This is episode 105 of Game of Crimes. You know what that means, Murph? Well, I got it. There's one at 106. Nah, 105. You didn't, really? Well, oh, no, no, no. You're right. 106. You know oh, why? Oh, you heard that, ladies and gentlemen. He said I was right. Uh, no, no, I said you were correct. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Mr. William Rodriguez Abadio was 105. We are into 106, which basically means, hey, look, we are into the second uh, half of uh, our four-year plan. So uh, we have started the <laughs> year three. There you go. All right. So, hey, guys, everybody, welcome. Hey, we're going we're gonna to get into some good stuff again. And, and seriously, two years on, 105 episodes going on 106, which is what I said originally. Murph just got it wrong. Um, you guys know I'm right. Anyway. Uh, but, uh, hey, look, we want to get into this. But, hey, first, let's just get some of the housekeeping out of the way real quick. You know, head on over to Apple, Spotify. Hit those five stars. It helps us out a lot. People look for us. They find us that way. Your reviews help us get to the top and help people find this thing of ours we call Game of Crimes. Also, head on over to our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com, for everything, including the book, you know, Son of the Cali Cartel, which we had uh, from William Rodriguez Abadia. So we've got a lot of good uh, books out there, a lot of good stuff there. Follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, and the Instagram, but where you got to be is Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have got one of our funnest things to do, Murph, coming up, Q&A. Yep. So that will be coming up in a few days. We just did 911. The one I did with you on 911, that was a little bit different. I mean, everybody thought it was one thing, then it was another. We don't want to give it away because if you want to listen to it, where you got to go, patreon.com slash game of crimes and hear what Absolutely. we said about 911. Absolutely. 199. What's your emergency? Come yeah. on over. Well, the emergency is you can't call 911, so your house just burned down. <laughs> um, but, but that was the other thing, too. But that was interesting, though, because. Uh, even with you, it was kind of like it had a twist at the end. I know a lot of folks didn't see coming. So, but we just got on over there because we just did, we just finished, finished the review of uh, season two of Narcos. Yep. And we actually had people on Patreon ask, hey, can you do a review of season three, you know, with Chris and Dave? So that's something under consideration right now. We'll get them back on. And one episode, basically, we'll cover season three of Narcos. But, you know, we've got our a monthly Q&A, the Narcometer, you know, uh, you can't make this shit up. So, guys, we got a ton of good stuff. But the only way you're going to find it is to go to patreon.com slash gamercrimes. Now, let's get into this one, Murph. But All before right. we do, I got to tell you about, though, another little thing we have, the Velvet Glove. Cool. Sandy Salvato, yeah, our favorite mafia queen. Game of Crimes fans, just head on over to game. Go to Facebook, type in Game of Crimes fans, answer a couple questions. They're easy. If you can't answer these questions, come on. Look, you'll be ad given admittance into the inner sanctum of where hilarity, jocularity, joviality ensues. There are some good stuff on there, <laughs> you know. And there's also some serious stuff. And this is what I like about the the uh, the fan club is when people are going through a little bit of a tough time, if they post on there, it's amazing how many people come in to support them. So it's actually gotten to be, even though you haven't met these people in person, we've gotten to be like a little enclosed family. So come over and check us out. It's a lot of fun. You'll see a lot of, you'll see a lot of funny things on there you won't see anywhere else. I'll tell you that. And there are some people in serious need of mental health help. So, uh, <laughs> I and mean, by the that way, might one, be the qualification to come in there. You know, It is. And one of the stories we have coming up came from, our fan group. So on small town police blotter, which we'll talk about here in a second. So speaking of that, Murph, uh -huh. this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but you roll. guys know us. We never take ourselves serious. We're going to have some fun on here. And what's one of the ways we have fun? 
Well, we have this little thing that we like to call Small, Small Town, Town Police Blotter. Drum roll. And by the way, I told you, um, one of our stories came from Game of Crimes fans, and it comes from A.G. Harris the Fourth. Okay. He is fourth in the line. There's, so there's the third, the second, and the first. So apparently, so uh, there's the father, the senior, the junior, the third, the fourth. So this is A.G. Harris the Fourth. So Steve, got right. a question for you? Yes, sir. This comes to us from Plymouth, Indiana, population 10,214. Salute. Now, Steve, you've been to job interviews, right? You interviewed for your job in, uh, you know, Krusty Krab, West Virginia, for the railroad, for DEA, right? You've shown up to those I did. law enforcement things, right? It's very yes, important to make a good impression when you, you show up for that interview, right? Yes, sir. So if you were showing up to the sheriff's office and interviewing, what's one of the things you might not want to do? You probably want to leave your meth or your coke or your heroin or your weed at home. That would be the illegal stuff. What legally that you're entitled to do would you probably not want to do before an interview? Come in drunk? (laughs) Is that what happened? (laughs) Holy cow. So, um, this young lady came into an interview at the the Marshall County Sheriff's Office in Plymouth, Indiana. During her interview with Captain Jeff Snyder, he detected an odor of an alcoholic beverage upon her breath. So it quickly went from an interview to an interrogation. And it wasn't long before this lady, her name is Snea Decky, I think that's it, is that she admitted, well, she'd had a little bit to drink that morning. You got to remember, this is like 10 o'clock in the morning. She also told the captain, well, I, but I, and I also drove to the interview. So, 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 okay. What did they do? DUI. They did field <laughs> tests and they gave her a certified breath test. I don't oh, know, it's but it's about a certified operator. So, Steve. The legal limit is 0.08 in almost uh-huh. every state. It's 0.08. If uh-huh. you're at 0.08, you are presumed to be under the influence. You don't have to prove anything. Yep. 10 o'clock in the morning, Steve. She was 0.158. Yo, baby, you go. <laughs> <laughs> she probably hadn't. She hasn't even been home yet to do the, sh- the walk of shame. You know what I mean? She's been out all night. What a, oh, my God. What a, come on. Reminds me of that song, Wasn't That a Party? <laughs> or the song day drinking she's just getting the jump on everything you know and i guess she was nervous for the interview i mean you know cut her some slack got a couple drinks to you know a couple belts you know just to calm you calm your nerves down you know and and get get, get on with it yeah just to take off the edge so i can answer your question i came in drunk to show you that i can understand drunk people which by the way a lot of guys and and ladies in law enforcement deal with drunk people on a regular basis that is probably not the best way to do it so steve but you know what another losing battle was what was this it? comes to us from Sarnia, which is in Huron County in the Ontario province cool. of Canada. All right. So the Ontario Provincial Police made an arrest last week. Again, they found a guy trying to fight while he was drunk. Mm-hmm. So big deal, right? What makes this so unusual? Big, unusual, right? Right. Well, he was trying to fight a tree. <laughs> Uh, I'm, you know, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to put my money on the tree because I think you're going to lose that one. He goes, you read that correctly, OPP said on Twitter. The man received a public intoxication ticket, was held overnight. OPP once again reminded the public to drink responsibly. <laughs> and leave the trees alone. Leave the trees alone. I've got to tell you, we had a quick story, but we had a guy 
uh, we used to call him Fast Freddy because he was very fast on his feet. And uh, mm-hmm. he went, he, he would run from you all the time. And uh, one time he was laughing at the guys he was running, and then he turned around, he ran right into a tree, and I was the supervisor <laughs> on duty. I had to come over and take a use of force picture. The dude's got bark in his forehead from where he hit the tree. Anyway, then Freddy went to prison. He gained, instead of becoming buff, he gained a lot of weight. He came out, we call him Fat Freddy, and he couldn't run after that. All right. That's appropriate. All right, Steve, what year? We're going to do another. Uh, episode of what year was it? All Are you right. ready? I'm ready. This is, and I will tell you where it's at. This is in uh, London. Okay. The uh, the title of the article is "Strange Arrests of Nuns in Manchester." Oh, now Manchester's a tough town, buddy. I'm telling you. I'm telling you, a singular case came before the Manchester County Magistrates at their court on Saturday. The justice on the bench being Mr. T. Dickens, Mr. Henry Lee, and Mr. J. F. Mark. Two Sisters of Mercy belonging to Manchester, where the order they belong, the Little Sisters of Mercy, maintain two large charitable institutions. So what happened was they were brought up in custody and charged with having been guilty of an offense under the Vagrant Act by soliciting alms Mm -hmm. at Singlewood Lodge, Prestwick, the residence of Mr. W. Rayner Wood, a county magistrate. So um, they were attired as nuns. Defended by Mr. Addison, barrister at law. This is in court. So as they were asking him, they were the prisoners were placed in the front of the dock, and uh, prisoners were given into custody for an offense under the Vagrant Act. Mr. Addison, is it that you all have to say, Mr. Woods, yes, but I shall be willing to answer any questions? So, what did they ask him? Um, now, did you know by their habit that these ladies were members of a religious community? I did not. Will you swear as a sensible man that you did not know they were dressed as they are now? They were dressed as they are now. And do you mean to say before this bench that you did not know that that dress, that they were members of a religious community? Well, I thought they might be, but I did not know how they were. So people dressed as nuns, soliciting alms for the poor. You don't know they're nuns. So they charged them with vagrancy, Murph. (laughs) Well, the key word in there was a sensible man. Uh, (laughs) Sensible. Now, now, here, I'll give you the ending of the story. Then we'll ask you, what year was it? So, um... We have now one duty to perform, and I hasten to do it by at once dismissing the case. This is one of the magistrates. I also wish to say that as far as my own feeling is concerned, that those ladies were exercising the highest quality of our nature. That is asking for charity for those who required it. The case was then dismissed, and the ladies left the court. It is said an action will be entered for illegal arrest. Ooh. So, so Steve. Mr. Sensible is going to get charged now. Steve, yes. what year was it? This occurred on October 12th. Was it 1878? 1888 or 1898? Well, first of all, October 12th is the best day of the year because it happens to be my birthday. birthday. Bah, bah, bah. One day after mine. Bah, bah, bah. I know. You're always late to the party, Murph. You came in second. I came in first. Yeah, there you go. 1878, 1888, or 1898? Oh, Lord, I have no clue. Let's just go with the one in the middle. 88. 1888. <laughs> October 12th, 1878, in the Illustrated Police News out of London, Greater London, England. So I wondered if the, if Mr. Sensible lost his job after that. He probably did. <laughs> He's now Mr. Clueless. He's Mr. Clueless. He's oh, wait, Mr. wait, wait. He can move to Florida. Yeah. Come on down. Become Florida man. Yes. <laughs> we have 
exactly. <laughs> Trust me, there are openings on a regular basis in Florida to be Florida man. Oh so, my gosh! You know, I, I swear, there's so many people moving here, I, and we were guilty of it too. But it's, it's thousands of people move here every day. But Murph, the difference between you and some of these other folks is you're not out running around. Well, at least that I'm aware of, naked, chasing ducks, or fighting with trees and making the news. So, that is true. You you are absolutely correct on that. I do not. It's do true that. that I don't know about it, or it's true that you're not doing it. <laughs> that I'm not doing it. Okay. Well, and that you don't know about it. Well, you don't know what I'm doing. Well, I do know what we're doing right now, and that's to introduce our next guest, which, by the way, you thought it was Tony Placido, and we got correction. It's Tony Plagido, because he is Italiano. Tony Plagido. Well, we call him Tony Placido. <laughs> Placebo. Tony Placebo. Or, no, Placido. <laughs> Placido. Or, or when I was still on the job, I called him Boss. Yeah. This is, I tell you what, it was uh, uh, this guy I have the utmost respect for. He's a retired DEA special agent who you know, started down in the low ranks, worked his way all the way up to where he eventually became the head of intelligence for DEA. For some Wait reason... Wait a minute. Isn't that an oxymoron? Well, I'm getting to that part. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason, I was selected to go from operations to intelligence when I got my uh, promoted senior executive service. And Tony became my boss. And I got to tell you, this is the kind of guy he is. The 12th floor in DEA headquarters, there's, there's these two 12th floor buildings... And in one of the buildings, that's where the administrator and the deputy administrator sat and her executive staff sit up there. And so my first day up there, I come up on the 12th floor, and it's kind of ho hollow ground up there. You know, I start to say hollow ground. <laughs> hollow ground. <laughs> Might be hollow in between the ears. Who knows? <laughs> there are times when it is hollow. Uh, but I came walking down the hallway, and Tony saw me coming. He goes, Murph! And Tony is a big man. And he came over and grabbed me and picked me up off of my feet, gave me the biggest bear hug, and you know, that's just not appropriate on 12th floor. I mean, so that's the kind of guy he is. I mean, just, you love this guy. Uh, I went to him one time and, and I, was, I had taken over this uh, classified intelligence center and uh, we were doing some different things that required me to travel quite a bit. And, I'm, and so every time I'd have a trip, I'd, I'd drive up to headquarters and, hey, Tony, I need to go here. I need to go there. And finally, after about the sixth or eighth time, he's like, Murph, sit down, sit down, man. I got a question for you. He said, who's in charge of the office where you work? And I said, well, I am. I'm the director out there. And he said, that's right. He said, so if you need to travel, go travel. You go do your business. You don't have to come and get my permission. And seeing, you know, in law enforcement, you always got to go to the next ranking person. But that's the kind of guy he was. He lets you do your job. Uh, and then, That was a mistake trusting you. <laughs> well, hey, I told him right then, I said, there, there has absolutely been a mistake made with this promotion because intelligence and Murphy don't go in the same sentence together. <laughs> well, but there's only one, one way we're going to find out if they don't go in that same sense together, and that's to find out what Tony has to say about some of the stuff he has. So I have to ask you, Murphs, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the oxymoron intelligence-led game of crimes? <laughs> Absolutely, everybody. So get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. I, I think you're going to love hearing from Mr. Tony Placido. Placido. Hola, 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 amigos, amigos, players, playerettes, do do that. We have another interesting guest. And here's the challenge with bringing interesting guests on. They want to tell us all the interesting stuff in the pre-call. We say, that's why we got a podcast. Save it for the podcast. And Murph, I blame you for this. You don't properly prepare our guests anymore. You're fired. I'm going to cut your pay in half. You know, this man that we have on the show today had the authority to fire me at one point. You don't. 
So, <laughs> yeah, oh, you were talking about if we need a break, give you the sign. You know my sign to you. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's number number of real true friends left. Uh, <laughs> that's a good morning, Monday morning sign for you. Well, now this we, is, got, uh, yeah, go ahead. This is, this is the guy we got on today, um, is one of the most highly thought of DE agents I've ever met in my life. He's a legend within the age. He, he won't admit to this. He's, he's humble as he can be. Uh, he'll probably deny all this crap I'm getting ready to say about him. Everybody always looked up to Tony Placido. Um, we called him friend, but mostly we called him boss. And the cool thing about when he was the boss, he didn't ram it down your throat. I, I remember, I got to tell this quick story, Tony. I came in, I'm running the uh, Office of Special Intel at the time, and everything's classified in there. And I said, I'd come in and I'd say, Tony, now I need to make a trip here. I need well, to hold on, Murph. Trip. First of all, your story doesn't hold water. You you were just saying you and Intel in the same sentence. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> well, that's right. That's the first thing. I told Tony the first day I saw him up there, I'm like, boss. You know, the, Mur- the words Murphy and Intel don't go together. I think there's been a major screw up here. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to Tony and I'm saying, I need travel here. I need travel there. And this went on for about a month and a half or two months. And, and finally, he said, sit down for a minute. I said, you know, yes, sir. He said, what's your position? I said, I'm the director of the Office of Special Intelligence. And he said, that's right. You're an SES. If you need to travel, you tell me what, how your trip was when you get back. You don't need permission. You're an executive now. And I'm like. Dude, I'm gonna go around the world. <laughs> no, but I mean that's the kind of guy I was. You love working for this guy, and I'm not blowing smoke on you, Tony. I'm just saying it's an honor, a true honor for us to have you here on Game of Crime. So thank you, brother, for coming on. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. See, uh, well, you know, he doesn't even brag or It's just okay. Thanks. Yeah. Well, we'll see what he says when the interview's over. Uh, so. <laughs> He's yeah, like Murph. What the hell did you get me into? <laughs> What'd you get me into? Jeez. And sorry, guys, too. Man, I'm still fighting. This is a week, Murph. I'm still fighting this a week over a week later after uh, the gang conference. Man, it's like uh, you need to get into some warm weather there, brother. And get that. Crap I know. Well, I I will be. I'm headed out to San Francisco this week. But anyway, let's get back to our guest of honor, Tony. All Tony. Right. So. As we do with everybody, thing of ours, Cosa Nostra, how did you get started in this thing of ours we called law enforcement? I mean, were you just like slinging dope on a corner one time and you said, look, this is too dangerous. I got to get on the other side. I mean, what, what was the deal, man? Well, you know, much to the chagrin of my daughters and, and some other people, I, I think I came out of the womb, like ready to go into a career in law enforcement. I, I've always aspired to a career in law enforcement, I guess. And, um, well, coming out my, of the womb, you were already strip searched. You're ready to go. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. Clean slate. But I, <laughs> I did my undergraduate degree in uh, Boston at this university called Northeastern University. And it's a it's a five-year cooperative education program. So you, you get no summers off and it takes five years to do a four-year degree. But um, I'm alternating 18 months, you know, six months at a time of school and six months of time, as it turns out, working for the DEA. Few times through, and um, very very competitive. Well, I I actually the first job that I took was with the U.S. Customs Service uh, because it was available. I I had always thought uh, that I wanted to do the the DEA work. This is you know 1977, so it's uh, you know Miami Vice is sort of just yeah, baby. In the in the uh, offing, and very interesting, and so. DEA had a vacancy the next year and they didn't want to give me the job because I already had a federal position. And I, I kind of fought the system and, uh, and I'm glad I did because they, they sent me my very first year with DEA uh, in the internship. They sent me to training as an Intel research specialist. 
And then the second year, they send me down to Miami. This is the year of the Mariel boat lifts, 1980. And um, I'm down there working on a bunch of drug-related homicides as a 20-year-old, you know, and I, this was the coolest job in the world. So they, I'm working with the two detectives from Metro Dade Homicide and a bunch of DEA agents. And uh, as uh, Raul Diaz, the detective, tells me, he says, hey, kid, you know, most homicide cases are, you know, they're a case of who done it. These cases, who is it? We don't even know who this guy is, you know. He's got no idea on him. And the, the, the pairing was a natural because most of them were drug-related ripoffs that turned into homicides. And so they wanted to use the DEA network of informants to try and, you know, gather some information on this. So I'm just a cub. They sent me along, but my job was to organize the files and uh, pull the evidence together and catalog it. And I'm, I'm a 20-year-old kid still in college, having graduated. And I, I've got a hundred and, I think at the time, 118 known murders that are unsolved, that are drug-related. And I'm going, this is the, and they're going to pay me to do this? <laughs> Who do I have to kill to keep the job? You know, it's like, <laughs> uh, well, that would make 119. Yeah, well, let's not yeah. add to the number. So, but, but, so, I mean, so let, let's talk about the origin of your name, though, because uh, Placido, is it Placido or Placido? Uh, well, the Italian pronunciation is Placido. Uh, and, and and that's my family uh, hails from Abruzzo, uh, sort of in the mountains just outside of Rome. Pig farmers that, that immigrated to the U.S. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Buonasera, commandatore. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, but um, with that name, though, some people might mistake it for being of Spanish origin. And so, did I mean, did you speak Spanish when you got down there at that time? So, I actually speak good Spanish now after tours in Peru, Bolivia, a couple in Mexico and traveled all over Latin America. I, I speak Italian well enough to get into trouble, but not enough to get out. Uh, my, my Spanish is, is much better than my Italian, actually. So. Sounds like my English. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was it. So you're 20 years old and you're seeing all these homicides. I mean, but nothing deterred you. Nothing said, God, I mean, this is like, you know, it's it's not quite like Miami Vice, but I mean, it's like, but every time you turn around, I mean, it's tough as a 20-year-old. I mean, you probably had never seen dead bodies before that, right? No. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't get dragged out to too many of the actual crime scenes, but I was cataloging all of the, the photographs from the, the crime scenes that are out there. And this is back in the days of the Colombian necktie where they'd slit the throat and pull the tongue through, you know, and... Uh, it's it's almost like in that movie. Well, it was the um, the movie Scarface was based on what was happening down there at the time, where guys that ended up on you know on Collins Avenue in some cheap motel, hung up in the shower stall and tortured to death, and body we were picking up bodies out of canals, and I mean it was gruesome stuff. <clears throat> but it was a it was a real introduction into the brutality of. Well, the human species, but the, the brutality of the drug industry, right? And so when people would, uh, you know, you're a college kid and, you know, drug use in universities is not something that's like unheard of. But when people talk about, oh, how could you, how could you like um, enforce the drug laws and do all this stuff? And you're not seeing the other side of this. You're not seeing the, never mind the addiction and all the other problems, but these people are vicious, they're vicious criminal predators, and they need to be 
you know, they need to be warehoused someplace to protect everybody else. Good hey, way Murph, to put it. Who did we have on that was down there when the Muriel? Was that Jack Garcia? Who was there when the Muriel boat lift came through? Um, Alex uh, Dominguez, I think he did a show Alex with. Alex Dominguez? Okay. Yeah, I think there's a couple folks that were there when the boat lift. I mean, and you want to talk about, yeah, I mean, you can kind of trace the increase in crime. You can see things spike. That thing comes over. I mean, the, the cartels, it was bloody back then, but, man, this kind of added a whole new dimension. Um, now, is Intel something you naturally gravitated to? Is that something they put you in and you just came to appreciate it? Because, obviously, you know, you end up earning intelligence later. Did you have a knack for it, or how did you end up getting in this job of being uh, in, in Intel uh, in DEA so early on? So as a student um, intern in this cooperative education program, they couldn't put a gun in my hand and turn me loose on the street. And the the program was actually run by DEA's intelligence division. Uh, and so I was, I was recruited for the Intel program largely because I was doing a, a double major. So um, criminal justice and public administration. So, I, you know, as it turned out, I talked to the guy who hired me years afterwards, and, and they were impressed that I knew something about public budgeting and policy analysis and those kinds of things to connect with the criminal justice side. And, uh, you know, they wanted me to stay and do the, the, the analytic work. It was, I was never recruited to be a special agent. Um, the work was fascinating. I, I was trained as an analyst, uh, I had a mentor who came over from the CIA. This guy, you know, rest in peace, George Oakey, uh, really taught me a lot about sort of research and writing and not bearing the, you know, the, uh, the lead in a story, but also not going beyond what the, what the facts will say. So it was all, <clears throat> it was, it was really, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> It was um, it was fascinating to get this background in intelligence and to understand the big picture. Uh, but then, as I went through the program and I'm ready to graduate, uh, there's another guy, Abe Azam, who I worked for briefly there, and he was in charge of something called SEOSWA at the time, the Special Action Office for Southwest Asian Heroin. And he was, uh, if you've never heard stories about this guy, he was the quintessential sort of tough guy, DEA agent, you know, and, um, and there was a lot of good natured animosity between the, the gun toters, the agents and the analysts, you know, and, uh, you know, some colorful language used in there. Anyway, I'm, I'm ready to graduate. And they they had had a, a couple of year hiatus where they couldn't hire special agents. I had been accepted to law school, uh, put down a deposit at Temple University, you know, on an apartment. I'm, I'm going off to law school. And I get a phone call. I'll never forget it on a Friday afternoon from Abe Azam. He says, hey, kid. He says, you want to be a puke lawyer or you want to be a real agent? He says, I got a vacancy. We need to fill it. I need somebody to go down to basic agent school in, in you know, four weeks. He says, what do you want to do? Sign me up, you know. And, and that was basically how it all happened. What kind of law were you going to uh, study? And what, what, if you were going to become a lawyer, what kind of lawyer did you want to become? Criminal law. I, I always saw myself as a litigator, and it was probably a step towards getting into one of the federal agencies as a as an investigator. Anyway, and I'd gone that route mostly because uh, even though I had this internship with the government, there was a there was a big drawdown on hiring, and there was some question as to whether. 
I was going to be able to, you know, to stay with the government after I graduated from high school, or high school, from college. And, uh, and uh, as it turns out, you know, I didn't need to. I've, I've got three brothers and all four of us graduated from Northeastern on a Saturday and were employed full time in our field on Monday morning. So yeah. <laughs> sometimes things work out, happy. you know. That makes mom and dad happy, doesn't it? Yeah, well, yeah. if you're going to pay the bills, you better you better earn some money. My my yeah, dad yeah. was a hard guy. So, so as a Ute, uh, as a 20 year old, there did they clear you? Or were you cleared for a top secret at that point, or did that come later? No, I was. I um, I started off, you know, like everybody else, with sort of a a uh, confidential with a waiver, and then they worked on the the uh, security clearance while I was there. And by the time I was, ooh, let's see, I, my first tour in the federal government, seventy nine. By nineteen eighty, I had a secret clearance. I don't think I got the top secret clearance until I graduated uh, from university and was offered employment as a as a special agent. And then they, you know, the, the upgrade from secret to top secret goes pretty quickly. But you know, it took the better part of six, eight months for them to do the background investigation <laughs> to give me the secret clearance. And uh, there is and no so, such thing as efficiency in the federal government. Mine no. mindset. Have you ever heard of Doha, the department yeah. of hearing and appeals? Yeah. yeah. So I had a, I had a small issue. My, my small issue was they came to do my five year reinvestigation and, um, I had just come back from vacation. I mean, I was feeling good. Just come back from, we spent a week down in Cancun I didn't mark that on my form because if you have a diplomatic passport, you don't have to mark any countries you go to as a dip passport, but in your regular stuff, you do. And they go, well, did you forget about this? And I went, oh, shit. Yeah, I just came. That one little thing. I mean, it was on my passport. I just forgot to write it on the form. Six months in Doha. Yeah, You are a very crazy, crazy character. Dude, not, I used to be. Not anymore. I'm reformed. You know. <laughs> uh, me and Michael Franzese. We're new guys. I got to tell you. So... <laughs> But there was actually quite a mafia in DEA from Northeastern, and um, you know it was a, it w- it was and is a very good university for that. But really, it was a it was a good program for the agency. If you look at how many of the people came through this program and went on to serve as executives in the agency, it's a very high level. I could rattle off fifteen or twenty names of. SES is that they came through this program. And so it was so effective that, of course, the government had to kill it. You know, <laughs> we have to. <laughs> hey, hey, it was working. So let's, let's get rid of that. Yeah, it's, we need we need more inefficiency, people. Please get rid of this program. Yeah. All right, well, that, but, but the thing I liked about the program, the way you said, is that it's a cooperative thing. I mean, uh, Murph, it took, Murph had the similar situation. It took him five years to get through third grade. So, um, you know. <laughs> I say that like it was a problem. No, most people do it in four, but you 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 overachieve. It was Tennessee. I was hanging right in there, brother. <laughs> Got to get it right. Yeah, but um, but but I like that too because you get some real world experience. It's not, it's not like you go to a university for four years and you come out and you got zero idea what the real world's like. You got in. I mean, how many twenty year olds are, are are actually going out to crime scenes, homicide scenes, or working on you know hundred and eighteen unsolved homicides and seeing what's going on? So. What great experience! So, what year did you? What year did you join DEA? What was your official uh, start date? Uh, my official start date was July second, nineteen eighty. Uh, it was July third, nineteen seventy nine, with the federal government with Customs. And uh, so, yeah, I, I ended up uh, when I retired at the end of twenty ten. With I think it was thirty 
31, almost 32 years of, uh, of government service because I would do six months of work for the federal government. Then they would put me on leave without pay. I'd go back to school. But while I was on leave without pay, that counted towards my retirement. So I, I got 18 months of going to university that they're now crediting towards my retirement. <laughs> <laughs> Only in the government does that work. Well, in 1980, I was a sophomore in college. Oh, wow. What fun. And Murph, yeah. you were guarding a railroad at that time, weren't you? I was. And nobody ever stole a train under my watch. Damn, damn <laughs> skippy, man. Them trains are all still there. So uh, so you go through. Now, you seem like a squirtery kid, but did you have any issues in the academy? I mean, did you have to write any memos? Were you any kind of a problem for uh, the instructors? Uh, well, I don't know that I was so See, much of a, a problem. That's not a denial. But- <laughs> that's not a denial. <laughs> My roommate was the first one to uh, to get bounced out of the academy. So we started with uh, 36 and no, we lost six. So we ended up, we started with 42 and ended up with 36. But my roommate was the very first to go. And he was, if I have to say, uh, he was somebody that shouldn't have been there in the first place. And we just sort of psychologically, he was not in a good place. He was a former NYPD um, officer, plain clothes, wasn't a detective, but he um, he had an interesting personal life. You know, the, the family and the kids on one side, and the girlfriend on the other, and you know, there Ooh. was a there was a lot going on, and he just uh, couldn't keep it all in balance. And then the demands and the stress that they deliberately placed us under, he cracked. Uh, on a number of levels, academically, he wasn't prepared, and he definitely wasn't prepared for the rigor of, um, you know. Yeah, and, and that's the point of the academy, right? Is is the job's not made for everybody. We had uh, my first roommate. They ended up putting him in a room by himself because he was kind of wacky and and uh, big man, extremely intelligent, in great shape. He could have done everything. Firearms. I think his dad was a, a chief of police in Florida. But, and, you know, and I went through Quantico at the FBI Academy when DEA was going through there. And this guy would line up and we sat next to each other. He would line up photographs of his family and children, uh, like on the four corners of his desk. You know, the, we had those solid long desks. And he would just sit there and stare at them during class. And he would ace all the tests. I mean, he's extremely intelligent. It wasn't like he wasn't listening. But uh, halfway through, you know, he comes to us on a Saturday. He's like, uh, hey, guys, can y'all help me pack up? Well, what do you mean pack up? Well, I'm, I'm going to call it quits. Hell no. We don't, we don't help. Sorry, we don't help quitters. You got to get that shit out of here on your own, but go ahead and go. Um, and then we had another guy who was fantastic. He was a chemist by profession. So I'm not sure why he wanted to be an agent. But after about three weeks, we woke up one morning and he was just had just disappeared overnight. The man did not know that we carried weapons in DEA. See, that's it's unforgivable. How do you get that far into a process? It's, that's do you, do you remember George Ellen Murph? So George Ellen looked like he was out of uh, central casting for like tough guy cop, scar down one side of his face, and you know yeah. New Yorker talk tough. So he was the he was in charge of the academic unit down at training, and uh, we had these big paper placards with our names on the desk, like a nameplate. My my roommate, you know, um, was really having trouble, and so we knew something was going to happen. We come back from lunch. They take his nameplate. He's not there. They rip it in half. Of course, you could never be late. 
push the desk together, and George Allen gets up and says, Mr. Marrero had neither the aptitude nor the attitude to be a DEA special agent. Looking around at this crowd, I see a bunch of people who are similarly situated. Your next speaker will be. You know? <laughs> and that about was it. We never saw him again. Everybody's bow, yeah. His stuff was packed up and he was gone. There was no discussion. It was like, we were, we're not even going to mention his name again. The guy yep. who used to be here and is no longer here. Is <laughs> out. It's kind of like Harry Potter, Baltimore, the name that shall not yeah. be spoken. You know? That's right. <laughs> Who's this guy? Don't, we don't say his name. So, uh, so, but but you yourself, you were just what a stellar student, no issues in the academy, never had to write a memo like Murph. Because my roommate was gone, I um, a couple of times I was like not late, late, but you know, if you weren't five minutes early, you were late. You were in late. the academy. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, and and I took like some brutal treatment over that, you know, with like the. Uh, the PT and all that kind of stuff, right? We're, we're doing a PT test and I showed up like as we're getting ready to go and oh no. So now, oh. now, now you're going <laughs> to run before we do the PT test. And, and after we do it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there was, well, we, did, you know, we had one where, uh, this is actually a funny story. So the guy who, he was a border patrol agent who was our PT instructor. So we're the very first DEA class to go through Glencoe, Georgia. And they want to make a showing of how tough DEA is compared to everybody else, right? So um, we're doing raids. Uh, they've got this neighborhood of houses down there, and we're doing raids. And um, they've got these actors, you know, a lot of whom were spouses of instructors and that sort of thing. So we do one, and, and um, you know, we're, we're playing it straight up, and we got some people who – started getting mouthy and started, you know, they wouldn't comply. And so they got treated like they would get treated in the real, real. And, um, we didn't think anything of it. Of course, the whole thing's on video and everything. The next day we're, we're out for our morning jog with our PT instructor. He gets us in front of the house where this all went down and he's got us running in place, but not moving. And he says, some of you people did raid exercises in this house over here yesterday. There's a little blonde woman who was a role player in here. She got treated pretty harshly. That woman was my wife. Oh. I hope you boys are prepared to run because we're not stopping until somebody starts vomiting. And, and true to his word. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, uh, Murph has a story about actors and uh, going <laughs> and just <laughs> when you said that you said actors. My first thought, Murph, was that story about Boyd Holbrook. Yeah. Does he know that one? I don't know. I do, you, Tony. I don't think so. No. So when you know Michelle was still administrator and, and Narcos was ramping up, and they had already hired the actors, so they had Pedro Pascal was going to play Javier, and Boyd Holbrook was playing me, and. And Javier and I came with this idea, what if we were able to get the actress to come to the Academy? So, you know, contacted Michelle. She was all in favor of it. We've got Netflix to pay for everything. Everybody, I was still living out in, in Loudoun County at the time. So Javier flew up. The two actors flew in. First time we ever met them. You know, picked them up to the airport on Sunday night, brought them over to the house, had dinner, got to know them a little bit. Monday, went to headquarters for a day. They got all the briefings and tours and all that stuff. And we were two gracious guys, man, stopping, taking pictures with everybody. And, and Tuesday, we embedded them at the DE Academy for four days, um, and they had to do everything from PT to firearms to felony car stops. And so one of their one of their things was to work undercover buying a couple ounces of meth in Hogan's Alley there. 
And, uh, and, and they told them, they said, here's a scenario. You've already been here before. There's just another two ounce buy walk. You know, you're going to buy it. You're going to walk away. Don't go in the house, though, because we can't. if you go in, we can't see you. You lose your protection. So Pedro goes up first, and he does an outstanding job. And, you know, and the actor in there is trying to say, oh, come on, man, we don't want everybody seeing our business. Come on in the house. We make it private. And, and Pedro's like, no, man, we've done this before. Just Here's the money. Give me the dope. Let's, I got to go. And so he starts to walk away, and the guy's like, okay, okay, here you go, here you go. So he does everything right. Well, Boyd comes up. He knocks on the door. Guy says, hey, man, come on in. We don't want everybody to see, his business, see our business. And Boyd goes, okay. <laughs> he goes in the house, and we're administratively in the background inside the house watching. And uh, long story short, Mongo comes out of the back, you know, unbeknownst to Boyd. And just this guy's like six eight, got shoulders about four feet wide. He comes, what the fuck are you doing in my house? You know, and just, round, you know, stands him up, pats him down, finds his undercover gun, just rakes him across the coals verbally, then, and then goes, storms off in the back bedroom. Well, Boyd sits back down. He's being cool. You know, he's like, man, what's this, what's this dude's problem? Everything's cool. We've done business before, I, you know. And, and Mongo comes back out and kills him with his own undercover gun. Well, Boyd falls out on the floor. I thought he shit his pants. I thought, man, this guy's going to have a heart attack. He's never going to talk to us again. But uh, so at the end, you know, end of the week, the AV people created this poster that's still in the Eagle there at the DEA bar. And it's got the four of us on there. And we each, you know, signed it and made it, you know, never give up or whatever your saying was. And on Boyd's, he said, whatever you do, don't go in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, what's the line, right? Somebody's going to be in charge of this undercover operation. It'll better be you, kid. Yep. Oh, man. It was, uh, I love the guy. We've stayed in touch. We're still friends. In fact, we're going to get him on the podcast here. So, uh, just love him. Well, yeah. We were down at the Southern California Gang Conference, and uh, the guy who plays the Punisher was down there. John Bernthal. And uh, Murph was telling him. Yeah, tell him. (laughs) Met John. He's like, uh, he said, like, man, he said, uh, what do you think about that guy who played you in uh, in Narcos? I said, you mean Boyd Holbrook? And he said, yeah. He said, what do you think about him? I said, I like him, man. He's he's a friend of mine. We stayed in touch. I've helped him on a couple other projects, blah, blah, blah. I said, do you know him? And he said, yeah, we were in a movie together. And I'm like, wow. And he said, when's the last time you heard from him? And I said, well, it's been several months. You know, we're trying to get him on the podcast. But I know he's he's filming, and his, his wife's from Denmark, so they're always traveling to Europe. And then he's busy, you know. And he's like, F that. He said, come here. He said, so we we're going to take a selfie. He said, give him the finger. I was like, no, I'm not giving him the finger. I like the guy. He's a friend. So John's like, I, he said, I will. And he gives him the finger, takes a picture, texts it to Boyd. Within a minute, Boyd's answer. You know, and John told him, he said, if Murph calls you to be on the podcast, you better get your ass on the podcast. And it was within a minute, Boyd's answer back. Tell Murph I'm sorry. I'll, give, I'll be on the podcast soon. I apologize. <laughs> and whatever you do, don't go in the room. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Famous last like, words. But let, let's get back to you here, Tony. And now is Tony short for Antonio? Anthony, yeah. Anthony, Anthony, if, Anthony. But if I ever get called Anthony Peter, my middle name, I know I'm. You are in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and watch out! Here comes the shoe. Um, well, let's get back to you. So after you get out, what's your what's your first posting? Uh, so they hired me out of Washington D.C. and I I came back just to sort of pack out there, and then I end up in Cleveland, Ohio. So, now, who uh, did you piss off to go to Cleveland, yeah. Ohio? Well, that's a Everybody good question. Everybody was going to Miami at that point. I mean, come on. So at the time, I'm engaged, and my uh, my now wife of 40 years is Ooh. living in New York, and I volunteer to go to New York. So th- there was about half of my class that said, listen, I'll go anywhere in the world but New York, and I'm volunteering from New York. So they said, oh, this guy wants to go to New York. He, he, he obviously can't go there. So 
Cleveland. I'm, I had to get a map out. Where the hell is Cleveland? <laughs> you know, the mistake on the lake. I was shocked. Absolutely well, shocked. I, I learned three words that I, I will never ever live in a place if the weatherman utters them again and that's lake effect snow oh my oh, god Oh man lake effect snow and lake effect wind those things will well you heard of i mean cleveland did you even know they had a professional football team <laughs> actually i became a browns fan when i was there it was the first time that i could park my car at work and walk to the stadium and i have been a long-suffering Browns fan ever since and you know long suffering it's redundant right if you're a Browns fan of course you're long suffering well you heard about the guy that, I mean true story the guy that died his last wish I mean he wanted six of the Cleveland Browns to be his pallbearers he yeah. wanted to be let down one last time by the Browns <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much but boom my work here is done okay yeah. Thursday try the bill <laughs> yeah so well this is so clean that had to be was it initially that had to be culture shock for you right because cleveland is not like uh new york you don't have all the um the buildings and the activity going on it's it's midwest you know I'm, I'm a kansas farm boy you know you go out to the midwest things tend to be a little bit flatter a little bit slower pace of life uh, so how was the culture shock for you when you went out to cleveland yeah i mean as a as a kid from the the Northeast, you know, I went to university in Boston, spent a lot of time up in New York. Um, I go to Cleveland. It's like they roll up the streets and put them away at night. You could shoot a cannon downtown after hours with no risk of hurting anybody. Did you ever hear that John Denver song? It was no. called, you ask how I know of Toledo, Ohio. Well, I spent a week there one day. They've got <laughs> basically, they roll back the sidewalks precisely at 10 and people who live there are not seen again. I mean, he had it perfectly down. Yeah. I don't know the song, but that's definitely the sentiment. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was interesting. Did four years there and, uh, it turned out to be okay. You know, um, was not, was not really what I was looking for. And I ended up being the seventh man in a seven man office arrayed against an FBI division of about 140. And wow. that's, that's at the time when, um, you know, the, uh, we were still, fighting out, you know, whether FBI was going to be very active in the counter drug business. And so, uh, you know, interesting, interesting times. And I was the new blood. So I ended up doing a lot of undercover work, um, in my first two or three years there. Um, Did you ever play a mobster with a lot? I mean, with a name like, if your name ends in a vowel, you got to be a mobster. I did. In fact, uh, <laughs> and it ended up, ended up in a bunch of, uh, conflicts with the FBI, over that because we one of my big cases to get promoted on uh was a case where we ended up taking down one of their informants as um <laughs> how, how okay we gotta hear that yeah how would ahead. you know he was an fbi informant because they never tell you no no they sure didn't no so I, i'm working undercover and uh you know i I've, I've got the whole italian you know sort of mafia wannabe persona going and i'm buying heroin What's your undercover um, name? Uh, Tony Pantangeli. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> yeah. it's Tony Placido, right? It's like a throwback right to the, uh, you know, to, it, to the Godfather, you know? But Wow. Tony Pantangeli. Okay. Yeah. I, I Tony that. G. Tony P. Hey, Tony yeah. P. What's going on, man? Well, that was it. I'm a, I'm a Tony P normally, right? So, but anyway, I'm, 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 uh, buying dope from these guys who are, you know, made Italian guys. So it's Angelo Leonardo and Billy Borgelli and Nick Martello and, and all these guys who 
the FBI uh, had been investigating and hadn't actually, you know, they were associated with some of their people. Were they belong to any specific family or just made guys in general? No, these guys were all, uh, they were associated with with a crew out of New Jersey, right? It was, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the, the, the organized crime group that was down there, the... It'll come to me in a second, but um, the, the long and the, and the short of it is, end up doing one, and we follow the uh, the guy who's going to pick up the dope into this house of a guy named um, Clarence Greathouse, and so uh, I'm buying heroin, but we end up doing a search warrant over there, and I think it's five kilos of coke, you know, several hundred thousand dosage units of pills and a bunch of marijuana, a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash, which in the Midwest was a big case, right? I mean, this wasn't, you know, it's not Miami later on where you have to rent a truck to take away the evidence or it's not a, not a big seizure. And anyways, it turns out Clarence Greathouse was an FBI informant. And I find this out after we had arrested him and, you know, done the initial appearance Somebody says, you better get over and talk to the AUSA over there because the FBI and the AUSA are talking plea agreement with my defendant without me there. Well, I'm, you know, that's the point where my career could have ended prematurely because I was ready. I was furious. And uh, it it turned out Italians, Italians have a temper. Who would have (laughs) known? As it turns out, the, uh, the AUSA and I became good friends after that. He didn't really. He didn't understand what he'd gotten himself into. I think there was some. Uh, well, some... did the FBI not tell him that? He, I mean, I mean, how could you not? He's he's obviously been indicted, right? Arrested on a DEA case, right? Yeah, the, the the FBI case agent that was running the informant, running this guy as an informant, uh, made representations that we had worked this all out at the interagency level before he talked to the AUSA, which just was not true. And, you know, and, he may so have aspired for that to be have happened, but yeah, but well, we had never you know, had a conversation about it. Hope is not a strategy. So, what did this this great house write the informant? What did what was it, what did you actually end up charging him? I mean, if you remember, I know it's been a while back, but the, I mean, it wasn't charged. He wasn't charged with like jaywalking. He this guy is involved in a conspiracy and delivering dope, right? Yeah, no, it was, uh, the IRS was involved as well when we ended up doing this thing, and he ended up eating. I think it was 20 year, a 20 year sentence. So it was, you know, five kilos of Coke, a couple hundred thousand dollars in, in cash, a couple hundred thousand dosage units of pills, but records. What we, what we really got were uh, three or four ledger books that then we built a historical conspiracy on that showed that this guy had been dealing significant quantities of dope for years while he was you know, actively working for the FBI and basically feeding them his competition. I, I hate to say this, but did you think they knew it and just turned a, um, a blind eye to it because they were getting what they needed out of other cases? Um, they certainly did not aggressively investigate this guy. I, I, I'm, he threw him a couple of scraps, you know, he, he, he kept him busy enough. Now, whether they had reason to know and turned a blind eye, uh, or they just were, you know, didn't have an, an enough innate suspicion. You know, how does this guy know all these things? I, it wouldn't. Let's put it this way: after a thirty-year career in this business, 
if you didn't think that there was something wrong with this guy, you you didn't belong in the in job. Our profession was it, was he maybe providing information on organized crime or, or you know? Well, there there was some of that, right? That's absolutely the case. Um, and you know, maybe they maybe their calculus was in the grand scheme of things, you know, let's not kill the goose that's laying the golden eggs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but if he's just giving them chicken scratch, you know, chicken feed, you know, just feeding them enough to keep keep, you know, what he was doing, he was feeding them just enough to keep the FBI off of his ass so he could keep dealing his dope. Well, taking out well, his competition. Yeah, yeah. I don't know enough about what he was doing. They they never did, you know, really go into a big rendition with me about what he did for them apart from this. But what we ended up proving in our case with the historical conspiracy was. This guy was a major level drug dealer in the Midwest. I mean, you know, this this was not somebody who we happened to catch him on a bad day, which would have violated his, which would have violated his UC agreement with the FBI because part of the agreement, right, is you won't commit crimes while you're, you know. Yeah, well, I like uh, I liked your choice of word there, Tony. Rendition. <laughs> <laughs> that has yeah. some ominous tones to it we're going to rendition it does. <laughs> yeah, well, i've been involved in those too that's that's fun oh no oh. oh. is that, that classified <laughs> is that something we can talk about those are kind of exciting it, actually it is yeah so uh in florida uh we're doing a case on a guy uh jay gregorius is working in my group and um the the guy who we're working the case on had already been indicted, um, but we needed to get him back, and he was down in uh, in Venezuela. Hey, Tony, so, before we get too far into this, a lot of people we know what it means, but just real quickly, tell people when you rend- when you rendition somebody, when you know when you when you do rendition, what does that mean? So people understand. Yeah. So extradition is a is a legal construct. So when you want to bring somebody from one jurisdiction to another to face trial and you go before the courts and the court orders the person removed. A rendition typically is one where um, it's, it's extrajudicial. You don't necessarily have the, the courts involved. Uh, and, and what they've said over the years is as long as the, the means by which you render the person and get them to the jurisdiction where they're wanted doesn't shock the conscience of the court. <laughs> Uh, that the U.S. <laughs> has got no has got no business. Uh, there have been some know. times I know a couple cases we had, but the Mexican authorities for the right amount of money, but they just tossed the guy across the border, brought him to a port of entry, and tossed him across the border. Say, not a problem anymore. And they said, well, that, U.S. Yeah, now that's a Mexican on the wrong side of the line someplace. <laughs> that's called a Mexican extradition. That's a little bit different. <laughs> Nothing wrong. That's like an Alabama search warrant. We'll talk about. Okay, now that we know, so basically. Uh, extradition is judicial proceedings rendition is extrajudicial it's like it doesn't always have to go through the court as long as it doesn't shock the conscience which is good now because after all the shit we've seen not much shocks the court anymore so uh, but so yeah. now you so you're talking about so pick it up from there you're down in peru uh no we're in venezuela so we i just we checking your story just making yeah. sure you were <laughs> <laughs> we fly into caracas to meet with this guy and he's uh, he's an air smuggler he's flying loads out of South America into the sugarcane fields near West Palm Beach. And uh, he'd already been indicted, so we had the case made against him, but we now we got to get the body uh, to get him arrested. And so we set up a deal to go down and negotiate another deal with him, but he wouldn't come to the States to do it. 
he's going to send other pilots to, to fly this stuff up. So we go down and meet with him at a hotel in Caracas and, uh, sitting there over drinks in a, in a nice hotel and having a discussion about him flying another load for us. And, um, he gets up to leave from the restaurant to get into a cab. And what he doesn't know is that we're working with the PTJ down there, the, the Policia Tecnico Judicial. Uh, and they, they pick him up as the cab ride. And this guy disappears. And uh, the next time we see him is about two hours later. We're on the DEA plane down there. And the guy shows up a little worse for wear, right? And he's, he, I remember he's got duct tape over his eyes, through his hair and <laughs> <laughs> and they, they basically like threw him to us and said, you could have him. I said, what? Is that, yeah. I said, do we need to do any like, no, 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 just take him. And uh, so we flew him out, but because it's a strange thing, right? So he was already indicted. So there should have been no reason not to just fly him back to the Southern District of Florida where he'd been indicted. But the AUSA got some kind of a weird you know, uh, order and said, Hey, listen, no, in this case, we're going to take them to the nearest available magistrate, which happens to be in San Juan, Puerto Rico. So we fly into San Juan, uh, and there's a, there's a judge there named Justo Arenas, who's the magistrate. And this guy's another one of these, he's a character study all on himself. And now they want to have a hearing, another hearing down in Puerto Rico before we can detain this guy. I'd never heard of such a thing. I said, excuse me, you're, you know, we have an indictment against this guy. He's already indicted in the Southern just He says, yeah, but you don't understand, son. He says that we don't have any detention facilities on the island of Puerto Rico at this time that are certified to hold federal prisoners. And the, and the what facilities we do have, this Oso Blanco is the name of the prison where they're going to put this guy are so dangerous that we won't put federal prisoners in there unless I'm satisfied as the magistrate judge that this guy is really a bad actor. So we had to have a hearing to, to get this guy detained overnight so we could have his initial appearance and then fly him back. To... So oh then I God. start hearing these stories like, yeah, people go into Oso Blanco, but they don't always come out. You know, they like Hotel California. <laughs> well, the, and the next morning it took us three hours for them to find the guy, <laughs> so they could give him back to us, so we could fly him out. It's like was he hiding know, the, or was he just just the, squirreled away in some cell? The prisoners are in charge, in. and the guards are just sort of you know they're an afterthought over there, and you you kind of negotiate for them to like find him and turn him over. Oh my so gosh, it's, it was crazy. And it looked like one of these, you know, old Dracula castles, the place that we went to. So, I, I, But uh, as it turns out, the guys down there love this judge. This Justo Arenas turned out to, I think, eventually become a federal judge, not just a magistrate. And He was an interesting guy, but uh, yeah, <laughs> anyway. This is, so there was how? no judicial order to take him. It was like, you know, the, the PTJ threw him to us and said, take him, get him, you know, go where you want to go. Flurry of phone calls later. And, did that uh, create any issues for your case later? No, actually, um, we brought them back up and they said, you know, you guys went through the process. You consulted with the lawyers. You took the extraordinary step. And that's where it turned out of like getting to the nearest available magistrate before you even brought them back to Florida. You've, you've done all you could do. You didn't. Um, they never raised the issue. And we certainly did not align ourselves with the PTJ to 
whatever kind of interrogation he may have gotten before they gave him back over to us. Uh, you know, their country, their rules, they, they just, right. when they were done with them, they dropped them off to us and said, here, take them, go. We don't uh, I, have, I have never taken a prisoner from anybody that had duct tape around their eyes and through their hair. <laughs> I have not either. <laughs> That's a first. Well, when we finally got him on the plane and he realized we were taking him back and it was the, he was actually thrilled. He was thrilled. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> get me out of here. I'll tell you anything. Just don't send me back to Oso Blanco. Yeah. Well, they would have taped him to the outside of the plane. even before Oso Blanco, yeah. They would have duct taped him to the outside of the plane and transported him. He's out there. He might need a little oxygen. We'll see. Um, well, that's interesting because when we talked to, there was a couple of cases we wanted to talk about too. So uh, one was before you went to Miami. Um, cause Miami, that's going to be a good one. Let's talk about the one, uh, you, cause you, you were mentioned some of the companies, so let's countries that you served in. So let's talk about, um, this case. Uh, and this one I said Peru before, but where it was Venezuela, right? It's where. No, no. The, uh, the other case we were talking about is actually in Peru. I was actually assigned to Peru, Venezuela. We did, I was already in Miami. We went down to Venezuela to do an undercover deal, but, um, I was assigned to Peru from 1987 to 1990, about three and a half years, uh, in order to escape Cleveland and get back to uh, you know to, to someplace a little more exciting. I I ended up volunteering to go to Peru, and um, how did that go know, with the wife? So she was my wife went down pregnant. Uh, and my came back to have the baby and our first and Megan and my wife came back when my daughter was six weeks old. So it was, it was interesting. Uh, the good news is that, you know, we could, we had this big house that the, the, the government provided, uh, and we could afford live in help. And so somebody else was cleaning dirty diapers and cleaning the house and she could spend all the time with the baby. The bad news was, you know, the family and the support system was a long way away. But um, what was the reason for going back to have the baby? Was it medical care, just issues of citizenship or concerns? What, what, what was the concern? So my wife had originally planned on having the baby in Peru, and she had found a, a doctor who had been trained in the U.S. and was, was very competent. She really liked him. Um, but when we finally got down to see the hospital, the level of like nursing care and technology and, the, and said, basically, if something goes wrong, uh, the ability to deal with it down here may not be as well. And then Cheryl Green was the, she was the nurse practitioner down there at the time. She said, Hey, listen, we, we recommend that you go back. Um, and not only that will pay for you to go back and have the baby. So my uh, my in-laws were living up in Vermont, running a country store up in Stowe, Vermont at the time. And my uh, my oldest daughter is a Vermont woodchuck now. So she's born in, born in Vermont. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, GameofCrimesPodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. 
In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.